scripture passage that we're going to look at today is Matthew chapter 15, verses 32 through 39. 32 through 39, and we'll finish out this chapter today. Beginning in verse 32, Then Jesus called His disciples to Him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with Me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to Him, Where are we going to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, He took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, He broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who, were eight, or those who ate were 4,000 men, besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. These are the words of God. You may have a seat. <coughs> So a few weeks ago, when Jordan preached about the faith of the Canaanite woman in verses 21 through 28, he read a passage of Scripture from from Deuteronomy. And the point of reading that passage was to try to show the, the roots of Jewish animosity towards other peoples. It all goes back to a place. It wasn't just completely unfounded. It was wrong, but it was unfounded. That passage, a part of that passage was Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 2 and 3, where we read this, When the Lord God gives them over to you, speaking of the Canaanites, when He gives them over to you, and you defeat them, you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them, and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons, or taking their daughters for your sons. God said that to the Israelites. Now, if I were to ask you how you felt about our nation's history of bigotry, of separatism, of racism, or any nation for that matter, the the early Americas or or the the early uh, uh, French um, takeover of Indians and things like that, if I were to ask you how do you feel about that, I would assume... All of us, I hope, Christians would uh, be sort of, uh, would, would almost burn inside of us with a, uh, a zeal to see those things completely done away with. In other words, as Christians, we should be anti-racism uh, or anti-discrimination uh, towards people who are different than us. We would agree, I believe, those attitudes are sinful and wrong. Anytime a person or a group of people has a sense of superiority over another group of people because of their ethnic background or because of their ancestry, Christians should be the first ones to step up and say, that's wrong. We, we don't believe in that. We don't live like that. You should stop. I, I believe Scripture is clear from the Old Testament all the way to the New Testament. We are to love our neighbors. When Jesus was asked, well, who's my neighbor? He gave the parable of the Good Samaritan. 
showing that the Samaritan was being a neighbor to the Jewish man. In other words, he was, he was shutting the lips of any Jews who would have continued to uh, advance their historical hatred of the Samaritans. They, they hated Samaritans. They were half-breeds in their minds. And so Jesus shuts it down. He says, that Samaritan was being a neighbor. Now you go and do likewise. In other words, God hates Discrimination. He hates ethnic discrimination, or we might call it uh, racism, the idea that there are multiple races. Racism. God hates it. We all came from two people. There's one race called the human race. We have different colors of skin, but we all come from the same place. And I think Scripture is clear about that. So how then do we reconcile that with what the Old Testament teaches, what we know Scripture teaches? I just read it, Deuteronomy chapter 7. How do we reconcile that? I mean, if you read that at surface level, you would think, what seems clear? God commanded His people to be racist, maybe, or at least discriminatory towards other peoples. Is God prescribing a type of ancient Middle Eastern racism? Some people seem to think so. Uh, Richard Dawkins says this, quote, listen to this, this is how... The God of the Bible is perceived. He says, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. End quote. Focusing specifically on his adjectives, ethnic cleanser and racist. How do we respond to that? When they go to the Old Testament, they say, see, God said don't intermarry, don't mix races, races, don't mingle with those peoples. How do we reconcile it? Is God racist? Does he really favor one group of people over another? Well, the answer, the way we answer that question is not by going to a special time and a place at a special people at a special event in history. We look at the overall plan of redemption where Richard Dawkins messes up where he says the God of the Old Testament as if that God were different than the God of the New Testament or the God of the pre-Old Testament or, or past New Testament. It's the same God. He never changes. And so if we want to understand what God was doing, we have to look at everything, the big picture. In other words, we've got to read the whole Bible. We don't stop in the Old Testament and say, well, I guess that's how God was. And that's what we're watching take place in Matthew's Gospel, the first book of the New Testament or the New Covenant, as soon as we get into it, Matthew begins to explain how what God began to do in the Old Testament is being fulfilled in the New. And this story that we're looking at today shines even more light on what Jesus came to accomplish, namely to break down the dividing wall of hostility between people groups, between Jews and Gentiles. This is, he's clarifying what was happening in Deuteronomy. And so let's, let's go to the, the Scriptures and see what it says. And, and before we get there, the same words that I began with last week, the, in the intro last week, apply today. This passage of Scripture, this story, is very much like another passage of Scripture we've already read. And it would be easy for us to approach it and say, okay, he fed 4,000, he fed 5,000, 4,000, 5,000, we've heard it, we get it. 
and we could be bored and we could, we could come to it with an attitude of, well, well, you know, I've heard it already. I pray that uh, we would be eager to hear what God would say and what God would show us. This passage is not like the other story. And in, and in fact, it, it explodes uh, um, and, and magnifies God's plan as He's been working in human history. So as I walk through this passage, this is what I want to do by way of exposition. I'm going to go through verse by verse and just kind of explain the details of the story for two reasons. Number one, there are many liberal scholars who say Jesus never fed a mass multitude of people. In fact, what happened was it was a fictional story that somebody made up. And at some point down the line, the, the details got so blurry and so messed up and Matthew, in his ignorance, began to write, instead of recording the original fake story of one feeding, he actually wrote two fake stories of, two, uh, of one um, made-up fictional event. And so I want to go through the details and compare the feeding of the 5,000 with the feeding of the 4,000 to show they're completely different events. And secondly, the reason I think that is important to compare these two stories is because the, the purpose of this narrative requires that we compare them both. And when we see how they are different, that shows us why Matthew included this story in his gospel, when we see the differences. So, beginning in verse 32. Then Jesus called His disciples to Him, remember that, and said, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with Me now three days, and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. So we are confronted again from the very beginning with the compassion of Jesus, which is not new to us. This word for compassion is used nine times in the, gospel, or in the Gospels, and we've already talked about it. It, it is this deep, gut-wrenching uh, pity and affection and warmth and love that Jesus has for the people. It literally means to be turned in the bowels, in your inner being. That's not new. But, notice, Jesus calls His disciples to Him. And He tells them about His compassion, which then leads to this, this miraculous feeding. Compare that with what we learn in Matthew chapter 14 at the feeding of the 5,000. And when it was evening, the disciples came to Him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. So in this passage, we have a people who have been with Jesus for three days, and they're out of food. In the previous passage, we had a people who had just been with Him for one day. It was just evening. In the previous passage, the disciples come and say, In essence, these people are hungry. Send them away to buy food. But in this passage, Jesus calls them to Himself after three days and says, I have compassion on the crowd, this crowd, I have compassion. So Jesus, in order to show His disciples, I believe, the type of attitude they should have, intentionally calls them to Himself for a time of teaching. And He says, He shows them His heartfelt love and sensitivity and care towards these people. Again, it's been three days. We have no record of the disciples coming after day one and saying, the people are hungry. Or after day two and saying, the people are hungry. They're going to run out of food. Or, or even day three, look, the people are out of food. They don't say anything. But in this passage, Jesus initiates. I have compassion on these people. Verse 33. The disciples said to Him, 
Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? Now remember, they were there for the feeding of the 5,000. And remember, after the feeding of the 5,000, we went into John 6, where Jesus ties the feeding of the 5,000 with the bread from heaven in the Old Testament. They were there for all of that. They're Jewish men. They knew the story of the manna from heaven in the Old Testament, which was far more people for 40 years. They knew all of this. They'd already heard how it ties together, and yet they still come and say, where are we going to get the food to feed these people? Now, we think, well, I would have remembered. I would have just told him, Jesus, just make food. You've done it before. God did it thousands of years ago. It's already happened. Just make food. But they don't do that. They, they're still acting like it's up to them to go and find this probably unimaginable amount of food to just feed so great a crowd. It's almost as if they had forgotten about His power. Verse 34, Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And a few small fish. So here, just in analyzing the details, they have more food at this feeding than there was in the last one. I don't think there's any special interpretive application here. Just make reference. This is a different amount of food. Verse 35, And directing the crowd to sit on the ground... He took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. Verse 35, notice it says, He directed them to sit on the ground. The word there means the dirt, the earth. In Mark chapter 6, verse 39, Mark's account of the feeding of the 5,000, says He commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So the feeding of the 5,000, it was green grass. And this place, this, this area of the world, the, green is only, or the grass is only lush and green for a short time, and then it turns brown and dies away. So what we're looking at here is a different place, a different time period. Time has passed. It's not just a, a, a mix-up of details. It's very specific. That was then, and this is now. So again, a clarification. It's a different story. And he fed them, going through verse 37, they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of broken pieces left over. You remember last time we talked about the satisfaction that Jesus gives, that he, he meets needs and when they're done, uh, another way of wording the original, the story of the 5,000, they all ate to their fill. And again, it's the same picture. They're full. They're done. They don't want any more food. They've gotten all they could handle. They took up seven baskets full, a different number left over. Before it was twelve, here it's seven. Here a different word for baskets, which uh, some say this word for baskets would fit more into a Gentile uh, way of thinking. Same principle is given though. Jesus never leaves people unsatisfied. Again, I think it's important for us to see that Jesus doesn't feed with this type of soup kitchen mentality. Well, I've just cooked up a bunch. I hope there's enough. You guys go for it. Sort of indiscriminately, just to the point of waste. Oftentimes, we, we like to call it kingdom waste. Well, that's just part of the cost of kingdom work. No, Jesus meets their specific need, and when there's food left over, they take it up. They're going to do something with it, but they don't waste. And He leaves them satisfied. Verses 38 and 39. Those who ate were 4,000 men, besides women and children, 
And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. The previous story was 5,000 people, or 5,000 men. This is 4,000 men. Again, assuming in this time period, most men were married. Most couples had at least one child, if, probably, if not five, six, seven, eight children, as many as they could have. So we'll just be safe and say another crowd of probably somewhere at least 15, if not 20,000 or more people. Jesus has just fed with seven loaves of bread and a few small fish, and He takes up seven baskets full of leftovers. So we see again a miracle of creation. He, he makes food when there was none, and He gives it to the crowd, and then He heads off to another region to continue His ministry. So that concludes the exposition. That's what we have. Now, summarize. Different group of people, different time of year. These people have been with Jesus for three days. The disciples did not initiate this feeding. Jesus initiates this feeding by expressing His personal compassion for these people. It starts off by Jesus saying, I have compassion for these people. So as we think about what Matthew's doing and how to, how to apply this passage or how to interpret this passage, I think it's important that we just very quickly uh, think back to what we learned in the previous story, especially from John chapter 6. Remember the previous feeding went straight into John chapter 6, which culminates in this, this confrontation where the Jews say, God fed our forefathers, our ancestors, or Abraham gave our, uh, or Moses gave our ancestors bread in the wilderness. And Jesus says, I am the true bread. He explains that point in John 6, 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And we learn in that story that just like physical bread is, is uh, analogous to the most basic fundamental necessities of physical life, so spiritual bread is for spiritual life. And so when Jesus says, I'm the true bread from heaven, I am the bread of life, you must come to me, what He's saying is, I am the most basic necessity for spiritual life. So when God sent manna to the children of Israel in the wilderness, the point wasn't the manna. The point was someday I'm going to send my true bread to satisfy my people. It was foreshadowing or pointing to the true bread. The same happened with the 5,000. Jesus was saying it's not about the bread. It's about me. I've come to satisfy my people. And I always leave them satisfied. They will come to me and they will have of their fill and they'll be satisfied. Jesus is the sustenance and the life-giving nutrient for the souls of His people. Without Him, there is no spiritual life. There's only spiritual death leading to physical death, leading to eternal death. But with Jesus, the true bread, there is spiritual life abundantly in this life and then life everlasting, eternal life. So anytime we see a, a miraculous mass feeding, the point is Jesus is the bread. Jesus is the food. He's the sustenance. Now in chapter 14, the feeding of the 5,000, we might have expected, and the Jews might have expected, that the Messiah would give special attention to them. Remember in our study of the parables, 
in chapter 13. We, we talked over and over about how the Jews were expecting the kingdom of the Messiah and the Messiah Himself to be distinctly sectarian, distinctly Jewish or Jew-exalting, Gentile-excluding. That's what they thought. They expected that. And so when Jesus comes and He's the Messiah and He comes to 5,000 men, including women or not including women and children, and He displays His ability to satisfy them spiritually, Matthew's Jewish reader might have thought, well, of course. He's the Messiah. We're the Jews. We're God's people. Of course the Messiah would come and satisfy the Jews. That's what He's supposed to do. Perhaps even the disciples, when it happened, they would have been uh, excited or, or, or taken back by the miracle. But the fact that Jesus is satisfying Jewish people, they might have thought, well, of course. We're the people of, of God. We are Israel. This is supposed to happen. And again, when we read this story, it's almost like the disciples don't care about these people. It's been three days and they haven't said a word. In the original story, it's just evening. It's evening, Jesus. These people are hungry. Let them go eat. So what are we seeing in this chapter, chapter 15? Well, Mark gives us a context clue. In Mark chapter 7, verse 31, we read this. Then He returned from the region of Tyre, that's where the Syrophoenician woman was healed. Went through, the, went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. Decapolis is a Greek word and Greeks are Gentiles. Jesus is in Gentile territory now. So in chapter 15, Jesus does the same thing He did in chapter 14, except now it's for Gentiles. And Jesus initiates this event by letting His disciples in on a little piece of information that they might not have considered yet. I have compassion for these people too. And all of God's Gentile children said, Amen. We're Gentiles. So when Jesus does this, He's saying, I have compassion on these people also. And the Gentiles actually display what seems to be a more humble and receptive attitude than the Jews had displayed. Gentiles have been with Jesus for three days straight. We don't have record of the Gentiles staying after the next day and saying, well, if you want us to believe in you, show us another sign. Feed us again. There's no record of that. They're fed and they're sent away. So in continuing with the, the, the story or the theme that Jordan pointed out a few weeks ago, we are seeing the continuation of the unfolding of God's plan of redemption, His eternal plan. And that plan is this. God entered into a covenant with the nation of Israel in order to bring about the birth of the Messiah, Christ, in order to then send His salvation outward to the nations who were at one time primarily excluded from the redemptive purposes of God. That's the plan. Now some of this is review, but it's crucial that we understand the, the overlying story of Scripture, how all of the Bible fits together. It's important for us to take little pieces and, and chew on them and, and get all that we can out of them, but if we don't put them back into the big story and understand the big story, then we're going to make a lot of mistakes. Remember last week I referenced... God came to Abraham 
And he entered into a covenant with Abraham. And that covenant was to bless all of the nations. In you, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. How quickly people forget that. Abraham was not a Jew. Abraham was not an Israelite. People say, I stand with Israel. And you say, why? And they say, well, because the Bible says, I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse those who curse you. God said that to Abraham. Not a Jew. Not an Israelite. A pagan. He makes this covenant with Abraham. And then, after the covenant with Abraham, God makes a covenant with Israel. Sort of a, a, a sub-covenant with Israel at Sinai. And this covenant with Israel takes Israel and makes them a nation. A type, a foreshadowing of the church which will then bring about the birth of the Savior who will be born from the tribe of Judah. So God's plan has always been for the nations from the very beginning. At first it was centripetal, that is, towards the center. In Deuteronomy 4, God said, Obey my laws and do what I say, and the nations will look at you and they will say, How great is this people and their God who gives them this law. They will look at Israel towards the center, but then it works outward, centrifugal. And this is what we're seeing. It works out from the center. You're going to take a, a bucket of water with no lid on it, and you swing it around. The water goes out. It doesn't come out. It goes back to the bottom of the bucket. It stays there. It's moving outward from the center. That's how God's plan is working now. So when He gives the Great Commission, when Jesus says, Go and make disciples of all of the nations, He's saying, Go from here. We get a picture of this same pattern in Romans chapter 1 when Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It started with the Jews, but it was never solely about the Jews. It began there. The Messiah had to come from somewhere. It began with them, and then it moves outwards. But the Jews were under this impression. It's about us. We are, we are special, above, above and, and over and superior to all the peoples of the earth. We are the Jews. And that's why John the Baptist had to say, Do not presume to say to yourselves, We are the offspring of Abraham. Or, we have Abraham as our father. John said, For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. He's saying, children for Abraham, that's supernatural. And God can do it anywhere He pleases. So don't say, well, we have... Abraham is our, our forefather by blood. And they showed their disdain for Gentiles and their attitude of entitlement because they thought this way based on the misuse of passages like Deuteronomy chapter 7. They came and they said, well, see, God told us that we weren't supposed to do this and do that and we weren't supposed to intermarry. Therefore, it must mean we are better than those people. Now, if we read the Old Testament, and I'll give two references. There are many, but two passages of Scripture that sort of clear up this idea. Isaiah 42, verse 6. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Not just Israel. Again, Zechariah chapter 2. Verses 10 and 11. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, 
declares the Lord, and many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be My people. And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent Me to you. So the Jews had this thought that we are better and we are special and God is doing something with us that makes us superior to all the Gentiles. The Gentiles don't have any, any saying in this. They don't have a dog in this fight, but they had obviously forgotten about Abraham and Melchizedek and Jethro and Rahab and Ruth. Gentiles who had been brought in and used in the line of Christ. And here we have a Canaanite woman displaying faith in Christ. We have a large number of Gentiles who are glorifying the God of Israel. We're having this miraculous feeding of a mass number of Gentiles. We're seeing Christ come and set right what they had gotten wrong for so long, thinking that they were superior to other peoples. We're learning that Christ is not a sectarian Savior who shows special favoritism to a particular ethnic group. Christ, the Son, has asked the Father for the nations as His inheritance and He will receive the nations. The Lamb will receive the reward for His sufferings. So here, we have a miraculous feeding. This miraculous feeding is a display of exactly what the Syrophoenician woman had spoke about. She said, even the dogs will take the crumbs from the master's table. And here Jesus is saying, no, don't take crumbs. Take this blessing in good measure, pressed down, shaken together, overflowing seven baskets full. Because Christ has come to satisfy the nations, people from every tribe and tongue. Again, Isaiah 49 and verse 6 it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. There the father speaking to his son, his servant, he's saying, Israel and Jacob, that's small. That's, that's, that's small potatoes. It's, it's much too small a thing for you to just redeem people from one ethnic group. I'm going to send you as a light for the nations. People from every corner of the earth are going to come because of the servant of God, Christ. So we have to remember, God has never, nor will He ever, look down on the mass of humanity and credit any one nation or any one ethnic group with a classification of superiority over another. Ever. Now, it's very hard for us to imagine, us in this room, we can look around, not a whole lot of diversity here. It's hard for us to imagine ethnic oppression. If we've ever been made fun of, it's because we didn't have the latest fashions in school, or maybe we said something to promote a biblical worldview and, and non-Christians looked at us like we were weird, but we've never been shunned or cast out or physically abused or beaten because of something we can't change like the color of our skin or like our ethnic background. We can't understand that. Going to a restaurant, and as soon as you walk in, not because of your clothes, but because of your skin tone, people look at you and you have a special place to sit. And you have a special bathroom you have to use. And you have a special water fountain you must drink out of because of your skin color. We don't know that in this room. We don't understand that. But imagine that you 
a Gentile or living in the first century, and you have been born again by the Holy Spirit, you have repented of your idol worship, you're now living in daily repentant faith in Christ, and a Jewish person comes up to you in the synagogue maybe where the church is gathering for worship in the first century, and they are reading from the Scriptures, the Bible, their Bible, God's Word, and they are speaking of the superiority of Israel from the Scriptures. He comes up to you and he says with the Apostle Paul, excuse me, I noticed that you're here to worship. We are Israelites. To us belong the adoption. To us belongs the glory. To us belong the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To us belong the patriarchs. From, from my race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Quoting, speaking of what's described in Scripture. He says, you're just a Gentile dog. See, we are called the circumcision that is made in, in the flesh by hands. We call you the uncircumcision. Remember, Gentile, that you are separated from the Messiah. You have been alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You're a stranger to the covenants of the promises. You have no hope. You are without God in the world because you're a Gentile and I'm a Jew. There's nothing you can do about it because I come from this bloodline and you come from that bloodline. He says, you have no part in this kingdom. You have no part in this Messiah unless you... All the men of your family are circumcised unless you start watching what you eat and unless you stop trimming the edges of your beard and you start making the pilgrimages to Jerusalem every year to observe the feast. You have no part in this kingdom because you are a Gentile. What do you say? He's using the Scriptures. He's using Deuteronomy 7. He's saying you can't be here with us. What do you say? Well, you would say... Oh, but friend, it's not as though the Word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all who are the children, or not all are the children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But, and I'll quote your scriptures to you, through Isaac shall your offspring be named, the, the child of the promise, the miraculous son born to aged parents. This means it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as, as offspring. That's what you would say, Em. You'd say, well, you're right. Sir, I was alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. I was without God in the world but now in Christ, we who are or once, who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and the same and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He says, Oh, but the Messiah fed the 5,000. You say, Yes, but He also fed the 4,000. He fed the Jews, but He also fed the Gentiles as well. See, when we understand this concept, then we can say with Peter, I understand now that with God, there's no partiality. In every nation, anyone who fears God and does what is right is acceptable. Every nation. So God is not partial to ethnic backgrounds. There is neither Jew 
nor Greek. Or we might add there is neither English or Scottish, there's neither Irish or African, there's neither Canadian or Scandinavian, there's neither tribal or suburban, there's neither hillbilly or city slicker. There's none of that. God doesn't show partiality based on ethnic backgrounds. And people will say, well, what about Israel? I mean, the whole Old Testament is about Israel. Remember, God said it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He made an oath. He was keeping an oath to that people, those men, to bless all of the nations of the earth through their offspring. Therefore, He set His love on Israel. God is not a respecter of social class or socioeconomic status. There's neither slave nor free. On this time period, slaves usually became slaves because they couldn't pay their bills and they were poor. And so they would go into an indentured servanthood in order to pay off their debts. If you were a free man, you were at least comfortable, if not wealthy. Paul says there's neither slave nor free. We could add, whether you live in a mansion in Beverly Hills or whether you're hiding in the jungles of Burma, God is not a respecter of persons. He doesn't care. There is no male or female. God does not respect one gender over another. In a culture where men were oppressive and domineering over women, women were treated as just a little better than a piece of prized farm equipment, Paul says there's no difference now. There's neither male nor female. When it comes to the kingdom of God and how God treasures His people, whether you are a middle class white male who travels the world preaching to thousands, making disciples, doing conferences, or whether you are a middle class mother struggling to catechize your children, God is not partial to either one. He says, you're members of my kingdom, for you are all one in Christ And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Because of Christ, because of what Christ has done, because of His work, because of His life and His death and His resurrection, His suffering, all because of Christ, if you are in Him, you're one. There's no distinction. So we see then Jesus, when He gave thanks and He broke this bread and He had His disciples distribute this bread, He was displaying His love for the Gentiles, all of this leading up to the point when Christ would go to the cross, when He would bind Satan from deceiving the nations, and He would say, when I'm lifted up, I will draw all men to Myself, Jews and Gentiles, all people will come at that moment. Again, Isaiah chapter 49, I will make you as a light for the nations, that My salvation may reach the ends of the earth. Eventually, these disciples and more like them would take not loaves of bread. They would take the Word of God, the gospel of the kingdom, and they would scatter it among the nations. That's why we're here. We are the fruit of their work. So this feeding is a foreshadowing of the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Jesus said, go, they went, we're here. So I want to close by reading two passages of Scripture. We've read them both separately. I'm going to read them back to back. The one describes eternity past, the covenant of redemption, where it all began, and the other describes eternity future, where it will all culminate. The beginning and the ends of redemption. The first Psalm 2, I will tell of the decree. This is the eternal decree 
of God. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And then we go to the end of the story in Revelation chapter 7. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God. Not your God, my God, our God. One people, our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So we should rejoice that Christ had compassion on the Gentiles and rejoice that we are a part of that innumerable multitude that will worship before the throne one day. Rejoice that our names are written in heaven if we belong to Christ. For it is in Christ alone that the dividing wall has been broken down. It's in Christ alone that we've been brought near to God. So Nate's going to come and, and pray for us, and then we're going to sing, stand and sing a hymn before we...